over the last couple of uh, weeks anyway, when they found out that the Packers were actually getting into the Super Bowl with the Steelers, people have been chiding me as far as what I was going to wear today. You know, would you, would you wear a, your green and gold or, you know, wear a cheese head? Well, I, I, I'm not like that, just so you all know. I'm not going to defame this pulpit for the sake of a sports team. Uh, that, how juvenile. So I'm not there. Let's get right into the message this morning. How about that first, uh, first slide? What do you say? Huh. <laughs> oh, that's music to my ears. I'm thinking I'm back in Green Bay. Uh, you can change the slide before a, a riot does ensue. Um, I could, I, you can see the headlines right now, right? Pastor killed in search service. Um, actually, I fly back today to see my family, and so I'm looking forward to that. It was actually just kind of serendipitous. We planned this, obviously, before we knew the Packers were in the Super Bowl, but uh, it works out very well because if I stayed here, I'm in a lose-lose situation, you know? If the Packers win, they'll kill me, and if, in fact, they lose, I'll be, you know, chided mercilessly, but if I go home and the Packers win, I can, you know, cheer with the team, and if they lose, I can say, See, this is why I went to be with the winners. I did you guys. So whatever, whatever works out, I'm okay with this. So good. What a, what a goofy thing. The cult, isn't culture kind of a goofy thing? Just the things that we celebrate and talk about. You know, 150 years, people are going to be going, what? Anyway. In growing up, I wasn't a, a Packers fan. I was a Bears fan. I grew up in Chicago. And my uh, mom was my uh, number one cheerleader. I think that's a... a in the job description for moms someplace, isn't it? I mean, my, my mom came to all my games. She came to my practices, my, my choir concerts and choral concerts and plays. And uh, even if I was the tree, she was there. And that's a great tree. You know, you read all my articles. This is what moms do. She had a very nurturing side to her, very nurturing side. But my mom also had a very judgment side to her as well. I remember I was dropped off at the babysitter. I was probably seven. And I don't remember it exactly, but I bet my mom gave me the story that us parents always give. You know, you be good, and you're representing the family, and if you mess up, you know, all these threats for corporal punishment. But I I figured, see, my babysitter that night was the senior pastor. And I figured if anybody understood grace, right, if anyone understood forgiveness, and wasn't there a a clergy congregant confidentiality rule somewhere in his his agreement? I I thought this, and I was mistaken majorly. Because I was, I was the babysitter's worst nightmare that night. And when I got home, I must have somehow told my mom I didn't see him do it. But when I got home, I, I remember this clear as day. My mom is sitting on the couch. And she says, Mark, come. Come talk to me. And so I do what you do. You know, lamb to the slaughter. I didn't have a clue what's going on. And she kind of caresses my arm. And then she kind of grabs onto it. She takes off her nurture hat. She puts on her judgment hat. And the grip kind of... And her face starts turning different colors, and the veins start to pop out, and then the finger comes up. And she gave me a tongue lashing like you would not believe. I would have thought I started World War II. It was a major, I felt so bad. And then just to make sure I got it, she whipped me over her lap, and she gave me a lashing of another kind. And I went to bed that night very sore, but still never doubting my mom's love as, as parents. We know that that's the way it is. We like to wear, there's lots of hats parents have to wear, right? We like to wear the gift giver hat 
You know, it's, it's fun to do that, isn't it? You give your child something you know he's wanted and she's longed for this, but they didn't think they were going to get it. And then they open it and you see their eyes and the excitement. And you're the one that gave it to them, so you're the hero. It's fun to wear the gift giver hat. And sometimes we have to wear the, the, the counselor hat, you know, where they, they've got this dilemma and they're distraught. And they're not sure what to do. And you come aside and you share your, your life experience and wisdom. And you just see the burden lifted, and it feels good to be the, the, the counselor, wear that counselor giving hat. And sometimes we, we have to wear the comfort giver hat when our child, you know, their little soul's been bruised by the world, and we hold them tight, and we remind them of how special they are. That feels good. But sometimes, too, we have to wear the judgment hat, don't we? No other hat's going to fit. We don't like putting this one on. We really don't. My mom used to say, you know, I don't like this. I didn't believe it at all. And so I became a parent. Then you know, as parents, I don't make me do this. And when you put it on, it's a horrific thing. But we know love requires it. You don't have love unless you've got judgment in there, right? I think if we took a survey of all the parents in the world somewhere, the vast majority of us would say, yeah, that's true. But somehow, when it comes to God, our Heavenly Father, we think that that's not right. Rules are changed. God should be love and nurturing and caring and compassionate and gracious, but shouldn't be judgment. But that's not true for us. It's important that we understand God from a biblical point of view, because again, our whole series, how we live and how we act and how we think is going to be dependent on how we understand God. So this morning, we're going to go through a book that I dare say you've never heard a message on before. We're going to look at the book of Nahum. So if you've got your Bibles, open with me to the book of Nahum. Now, it might take you all hour to find it, but... <laughs> But if you've got the Bible on the pew in front of you, it's page 906. If you open in the middle of your Bible, you're in Psalms, go right. If you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you've gone too far, cut back a little bit. Uh, if you're in the Isaiah, you're still not far enough. There's 12 small books at the end of the Old Testament. Nahum's kind of in the middle there. Uh, keep in mind, there are no throwaway books. Uh, God didn't you know, come across Nahum one day, and Nahum was feeling bad. So God said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll let you write a book. I'm going to stick it in the back of the Bible, and maybe no one will read it anyway. And it's, but it makes you feel better. And that's not the case. There is important truth in the book of Nahum that if we're going to have a balanced understanding, biblically view of God, we've got to understand. And so we're going to look at, at the book of Nahum this, this morning as we look at this, this very misunderstood yet incredibly important idea of God's judgment. So Nahum, chapter 1, verse 1. We'll start at the beginning. Good place to start, right? It says, an oracle... Concerning Nineveh. Nineveh. Now, we, we, right away, we're stopping. Whoa, 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 Hannah. That name's familiar. I've heard that name before. I've heard it somewhere before. Yes, we heard it last week. Jonah went to Nineveh. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up to me. Now, uh, we might say, you know, I, Nineveh, I just don't understand this thing. Why is this even in here? And this is one of the reasons why a lot of people today say the Bible's just not relevant to me. It's got all this stuff I don't understand. Well, God, because he loved the people way back when, he wrote to them in language and things, life situations that they could understand, that they were dealing with. Before God's word came to us, it was written to other folk, first of all, and, and we may have never heard of Nineveh before or barely, but if you live between 800 and 600 B.C. in the Middle East, Nineveh is a household word. Nineveh is the Nazi Germany of the 40s. Everybody knew of Nineveh. Nineveh was the largest, most imposing city. It, it, Nineveh is known for two things. First of all, it's known for its great size. 
Nineveh is about eight miles in circumference. It is a, a formidable, just, just an incredible uh, fortress. It's surrounded by two sets of walls. The inner wall is 100 feet tall. Now, between me and the ceiling, 30 feet. 30. So triple that is the height of the walls. And, and it's so wide you can ride three chariots across. That's the inner wall. Now, the outer wall is just as imposing. But here's the deal. If you can break through the outer wall, and I don't know how you're going to do that with all the fire of, of Assyria coming down on top of you, but let's just say you can do that. I hope you brought your boat because there is a moat between the outer wall and the inner wall, 150 feet wide moat, 90 or 60 feet deep moat. And if you've got your boat there and somehow you broke through the first wall, you've got to get your boat across this river. And meanwhile, all the firepower of Assyria is coming down on the inside wall at you. How are you going to get through? Well, this was the Titanic of cities. And this was all done, y'all, before power tools and before computers. Can you imagine the engineering and, and the, the construction, how they pulled this off? This was like the Tower of Babel for this, this era. This was, this was a, a, a monument to the incredible power of mankind. That's what Nineveh represented. The power and the creativity and the strength of mankind. Now, Nineveh was also known for its great wickedness. That's something else that mankind's known for, right? Chapter 3 of Nahum. There's, 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 and we don't have these verses on the screen, so you just have to check it out. But starting in verse 8, eight it says, Are you better than Thebes, situated on the Nile with water around her? The river was her defense, the waters her wall. Cush and Egypt were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were among her allies. Yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. Lots were cast for her nobles, and all her great men were put in chains. Thebes, we know, is the home of King Tut's tomb, located in southern Egypt. It also was a formidable fortress. It was located among tributaries and rivers to the point where people thought that it would never fall. Yet, in 663, guess who? Assyria surrounded and broke through. Thebes leveled it. Now, often when you take a city, the reason why you're doing this is so you can get them to pay you taxes. You need to get something out of this, right? But Thebes was so far away from Nineveh that they couldn't really manage it. So what they did is they just decimated the city. They left, they left nothing. They took some of the, the best and brightest. They, they murdered, massacred everybody else. Ashurbanipal, who was one of the Assyrian kings at this time, this is what he says. Look what he says. He says, As for those common men who had spoken derogatory things against my god Asher, I tore out their tongues and abased them. As a posthumous offering, I smashed the rest of the people alive by the very figures of protected deities. Their cut-out flesh I fed to the dogs, vultures, and jackals. He went through and he found their god idols, the ones that were supposed to protect them. He said, you like your gods? You think they're going to protect you? And his men all dropped their machetes and, and clubbed the people to death. But this is this, is, this, is this Assyrian MO. Matter of fact, it said that Joseph Stalin desired to be like Assyria. This was his model. This is what they were about. Nineveh. Now, just some history. 750 B.C., remember last week, actually, uh, Jonah goes to Nineveh, and Jonah preaches to him, and the whole city repents. They all repent. And, of course, when, when, when we repent, God will relent, and so the whole city is saved. Then in 722, they repent of their repentance, and they come down and they wipe out the northern empire. Then in 630-ish, and that's where the book of Nahum is, the, the, the Assyrians are coming down on the southern kingdom. They've already wiped out 50 cities in Judah. 
the city right in front of Jerusalem to the north is, is their protectorate city. The, the whole goal of, of a city called Lachish is to, I mean, they're a kamikaze city. They have to protect Jerusalem no matter what. It's their fort. It's all their firepower is there. And Assyria just walks through Lachish. And they surrounded Jerusalem. And the people are all locked up inside Jerusalem listening to the Assyrians outside. Tell me, if you're inside Jerusalem, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? You, you bring your children you bring them next to you. You hold them close when you listen to these guys out there sharpening their machetes. You know they're batting a thousand. And you know what they do to children and women and men and what they just do to people. How are you feeling? Nahum is locked up in Jerusalem at this time too. And Nahum picks up his pen and we would think he'd be writing his last will and testament. But instead, he writes Nineveh's last will and testament. Is a major thing. Now, there's some similarities between the book of Nahum and the book of Jonah. I think that Jonah should be labeled first Nineveh, and Nineveh should be, or Nahum should be written second, named second Nineveh, because there's some huge similarities. There's similarity as far as situation. You've got the Assyrians coming down in the book of Jonah against the north, and in the book of Nahum against the south. Same city, Nineveh. It's coming against the north, it's coming against the south. Same messenger. You've got a prophet of God coming against Nineveh in the north, and a prophet of God coming against him in the book of Nahum. It's Nahum. you got the same message. Judgment. Jonah, judgment, Nahum. You've got the same God. Do you have the same God? Why? Because, you know, this is a good, good question, because our world is right here, because the, the results were radically different, right? The end of Jonah, what happens? Well, all the people convert. And they, they, but, but the end of the end of the Nahum, they, they, they don't. Let's, let's look. Jonah's message. He says, you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. This is Jonah's understanding of God. But look at Nahum's understanding. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. Nahum is the book Jonah wanted to write, right? He didn't get to say these things. He had to say the gracious, compassionate things. But here's the issue for, for, for us. This world, if the world is going to like a God, they've got their twisted view a little bit of Jonah. But still, they want a God who's gracious and compassionate and kind and overlooks their sins and overlooks their foibles and is just kind of cares for them. And, you know, God, if Jonah, the end of Jonah, it says that he's got... Uh, what does he tell Jonah? He says there's 120,000 people in Nineveh and many cattle as well. God cares about animals. God's an animal rights advocate. You know, and people love this. You know, Jonah's God is a good God. It's a nice God. You know, why don't you try him? He cares for you. He's a good one. You can, he's, oh, he's got your best interest in mind. Come on. The world likes that. And Christians like the Jonah God. Let me ask you, how many messages have you heard on Jonah? How many have you heard on Nahum? You know, there's a reason. We like the Jonah God. He, he does us proud. We like to share him with our, with our friends. You know, God cares for you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I'm not bashing the four spiritual laws. I've used it. I use it. It's good. But there's another side. There's another side to it as well. Because God has not changed. It's important for us to understand that, that there are both sides. You can't take God's love and not take his justice. They're like wheels of a bicycle. You've got to have the compassion, his front wheel, but you've got to have the back wheel, his justice. They're the same size, and they both move at the same time. They're, they're, they're together. They're together. And if we look, the message was not different. Let's look at uh, one more. 
On the first day, Jonah started in the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Keep in mind, Jonah did not write his sermon, right? God said, you're going to say what I tell you to say. God wrote this sermon. And what's the message? It's judgment. 40 more days and you're done. Now look at Nahum's message. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. It's a message of judgment as well. The only difference is maybe Nahum's message is a little bit softer. But same message. The only difference between the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum was how the Ninevites responded. It's the only difference. In our understanding of who God is, we've got to hold both these things. And sometimes there's a tension, but we've got to hold them both. We can't lean on the, on the uh, judgment because that gets us into legalism. We can't hold just grace because that's going to throw us into license. We've got to hold both of them together. God, God is both. His message is equal in, in the same. A couple of things about God's judgment we get from the book of Nahum. First of all, God's judgment is thorough. It's thorough. Look, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Sometimes folks think about God's judgment. Well, one day he'll yell at me, slap me on the wrist a little bit. Maybe I'll have to spend a couple thousand years in a not so good place. But ultimately, I end up in heaven. It all works out okay. But look at the message of Nahum. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are vile. Next. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke and the sword will devour your young lions. Again, these are cultural things, but these are things that they would put their security in. He's going to take care of those. They're not going to save them. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I know in America it's kind of cool to show off your nakedness. But in the ancient world, it was not. Now, this is important because Christian folk and pagan folk alike, showing your your bare legs was an incredible, incredible shame. Well, God says, oh, we're going to show more than that. Basically, we're going to say your shame, is, is, is your pride is done. Your strength is over. I will, I will pelt you with filth. You know, if God didn't say that, we'd be going, ah, get that out of there. What's that in there for? And treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. I think there's was there one more. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? God's, God's judgment is not a slap on the wrist. We need to know that because God is a just God, every single sin, every sin has to be called to account. You can't sweep any aside. I mean, every, every motivation, every sin of, of neglect, everything. Those things you think you've gotten away with, you didn't get away with them. Every sin has to be called to account because God is a God of justice. His, his judgment is thorough. It's also sure. God's judgment is sure. Says the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord will not, the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. If you're guilty, this is the promise. He will not 
leave you unpunished. That's a scary, that's a scary promise. Claim every promise in the book, right? That's a scary one to claim. That's a scary promise. In 6, we look at, at Nineveh. We're thinking, well, these guys are never going down, right? There's a Titanic. But in 612 B.C., the Titanic, Nineveh, banged into the iceberg of Babylon. And Babylonians and the Medes surrounded the city. I'm pretty convinced that they didn't have a clue how they were going to get through this. But, and it's wild, you should read about this. We're not going to get into it. But I think supernatural intervention, they were able to break in and they leveled Nineveh. Matter of fact, so much so that it wasn't until 1847 archaeologists could actually discover the city and it was leveled so completely that they didn't find a single coin in that place god's judgment is thorough it is sure it will happen now some practical applications on that first application is, is repent now all repent is it's a fancy theological word for cut it out and so so let me ask you just do self-inventory don't forget forget everybody else as you look inside, is there something inside that maybe shouldn't be there? You've just kind of swerved off a little bit. Maybe you're flirting with somebody, nothing physical, but just you've crossed the line emotionally. You know what I'm talking about? Or, or maybe you've incorporated a little bit of deception. We've good, we're good spin doctors when we need to be. And what, what, what determines what you say is really how it's going to benefit you. Is that where your heart is today? Is that where turned into is that where it's at right now maybe you're, you're clicking on things you shouldn't be clicking on maybe you're you're treating people the way you ought not to be treated pride gossip what what is you're, you're ignoring something that you should not be ignoring the message of of nahum because of god's justice is repent it's time a, a second application is to trust god let me mention for just a second uh, to those people who have been hurt Somebody in your past has said something or they've done something to you. And as soon as I say that, if, if you're in that category, you know it's right there. It happened a long time ago, but you know what? It, you can't get rid of it. And what really hurts sometimes is you see the person who did this to you and it looks like they're scot-free. Nothing's happening to them. But you're carrying the baggage and the pain and the scars because of that. This is what God would say to you in, in Romans Chapter 12, he says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. God does a better job at vengeance than we could. And so it's an issue of leaving it to him. Let me, let me read you something. This is the greatest thing. Psalm 73. I love this, this psalm. It's written by the choir, David's choir director, actually. And he says, this is kind of his private thoughts. But he says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. He goes on, they're the most popular people. They've got the most money. Life is going great for them. These guys, where's justice is what he's saying. He goes on and says, this is what the wicked are like. They're always carefree. They increase in wealth. Doesn't it seem like the wicked seem to have a lot more fun in this life? That's what, what Asaph is saying. Saying, what is, it, what is this about? He says, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. Yeah, I chose the clean, clean path. You know, it stinks to be me, he says. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. He says, when I tried to understand all this, get this, it was oppressive to me. Isn't it true when you see injustice happening? Isn't that oppressive? 
depressing this guy. But look at this, 17. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. And he goes through and he says, I realized these guys didn't get away with anything. Their day in court just has not come yet, but it will. It will. And it will be sure and it will be thorough. And here's the incredible thing that Asaph teaches us. That if you've seen injustice, if you've been the victim of injustice, the scars are still going to be there. The hurt may still be there. But it doesn't have to cripple your life. The end of the psalm, Asaph is rejoicing when he realizes God will take care of them. God, because God is a God of justice, he will. You know, it's so interesting to me. You know what Nahum's name means? It means comfort. There's something comforting to know that God is a God of justice. Uh, God's, God's judgment is thorough. It's sure. It is also uh, personal. It's for me. You know, what we like to do is we like to categorize people. And we, we often will lump people in three categories, morally anyways. First of all, we've got the, the evil category. Now, the evil category is for the Adolf Hitlers and the Mao Zedongs and the, the, the Stalins and the gang leaders and, and the, the serial killers and people who do bad things to children. Those guys are in the evil category. Now, there's another category, and this is the, the saints category. These are the Billy Graham folk, right? These are the people who will dedicate their life, self-sacrifice, give everything to work among uh, lepers and that kind of, just give their life for others, the saints. And we look at ourselves and we go, you know, I'm probably not in the saint category, but I'm really not in the evil category either. And so we invent, and it is inventing, a category, uh, basically a moral middle class. Good. We're good people. We're the good people. And the evil people, we know where they're going when they die, and the, good, and the bad people and the good people, we know where they're going. But for the rest of us, God's going to go, ah, that's what we're thinking a little bit. But Jesus comes to some people who are thinking the same thing. And he looks at these folk and he says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago that you shall not murder. And anyone who murders is going to be subject to judgment. And the crowd would be going, yes, that's absolutely right. Those guys are the evil people, people who kill folk. Those folk need to be judged. That's absolutely right. And then Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother is subject to judgment. And you can imagine the people, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, yeah, man, he was an idiot. Of course I was angry with him. But, you know, I didn't kill him. That's got to be worth something. Jesus isn't, you mean just because I was angry, I'm under judgment? And then Jesus keeps going. And he says, you've heard that it was said that you shouldn't commit adultery. And they're like, well, that's right. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, but I have not made that one. Those adulterers, shame, shame. You know, they're going to get judgment. That's absolutely right. And then Jesus says, but I tell you that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And you can imagine the, the people. Oh, whoa, 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 back up on that one. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, Jesus, one little cheap sentence, you indict the entire male population of the world here. What is going on? I mean, who's perfect? I'm trying here, but come on, you've got to cut me some slack. And while they're, while they're wrestling with that one, Jesus says, hang on, there's more. You know, any failed relationships in your past? Judgment. You ever not do something you said you were going to do? Judgment. And then he, he tops it off with the creme de la creme. He says that be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. And the people, when the dust settles that day, they're, they realize there really are only two categories. 
And I was saying, Jesus, yeah, the way, the way you're saying this, the only people in that righteous category are your father and, and you, the rest of us. Yes, I'm in that judgment category. And Jesus says, bingo. And then Jesus says this. Jesus looks at the people and he says, you're right. You're in the judgment category. I'm, I'm, I'm not. You want to trade places? Trade places? Wait a minute. I'm in the judgment category. You're in the non-judgment. You want to trade places with me? Jesus says, yeah. You want to trade places? 1969, I was eight. And I came, to, I, I, I'm sure I just didn't think about it until then, but I, I remember the night so well. I came to realize there are really only two categories. And I, am, I wasn't a heinous sinner, but I knew I was in the judgment category. But I heard Jesus say, you want to trade places? And I got to a point where, where I, I surrendered my life for him. I realized that, that he took my place. Uh, that's why he died on the cross. And I don't understand how this works, but God the Father took all of my sin and my... It was all future at that point, right? And put it on the back of Jesus. Jesus took my place. Same year, my dad, probably about 29, uh, my dad came to realize there are just two categories. And he was in the judgment category. But he heard Jesus say, hey, Bob, I want to trade places. My dad was so afraid that if he did, Jesus would make him into some sort of freak. But but he realized, true, he heard his voice, and he said, yeah, surrendered his life to Christ. And maybe you've been coming here a long time. Maybe you grew up here. But you've heard this stuff so much, you just kind of bounced off your, your head. You're saying, just realizing that there really are only two categories. And I am in the judgment category. You need to keep something in mind. God's judgment is thorough. It is sure. But the best thing about God's judgment is it is avoidable. Because Jesus is saying to you today, you want to trade places? He will take your judgment. We're going to take communion in in a few moments, and you understand, right, that this this does not make you a Christian. You can drink a gallon of this stuff and eat a box of crackers, and you're not more Christian because you've done that, right? That's right, right? You'd be surprised how many people don't think that. Somehow this is making them. But you can take this and be in that judgment category and fool all the folk around you, but you're not fooling God. He's remember his judgment is thorough, it's sure. But maybe today for the first time, you could surrender your life to him, realize that you're in that judgment circle, trust him, accept his trading places with you. And according to the Bible, you are now placed in the non-judgment circle. Not because you were good. And you know what? It gets better than that. He does, it's, not like, it's like you've got a ledger up in heaven with your name across the top, and he erases all your sin. But he takes it one step further, according to Scripture. He takes all the righteousness of Jesus, and he slaps it underneath your name. Isn't that incredible? So I'm going to get to heaven one day, and he's going to call my name and look at it, and he's going to go, there's no sin here. Matter of fact, did you do all this, all this righteous stuff? Oh, wow. Hey, it's your book, man. I don't know. And we, we get Christ's righteousness attributed to us. Not because we've done it, not because we've earned it, not because we're good. We can avoid his judgment. And so maybe this morning, maybe it's your morning for that. Let's take a moment. Would you pray with me? Just in the sanctuary of your own heart. Again, he knows what you're thinking. He knows 
where you're at. Maybe he's been working on you for a while, but even maybe you'd recognize that this morning for the first time you, you realize there are only two categories. And he's asking you, would you, would you want to trade places with me? Would you surrender your life to him? Would you thank him for taking your place on the cross? For taking all the judgment that had your name written on it? And commit your life to him? Lord, I thank you for that day back in 69. For an awful lot of days since then where you remind me especially when I get on some sort of performance trip. God, that it's your grace, that you're trading places with me, that makes me one of your children, not how well I can do things. I'm not less of your child when I fail, but your grace covers that. My God, we commit this time to you and for anyone this morning, Lord, who may have... uh, surrendered their life to you this morning. Would you confirm that in their heart by your spirit? We commit the rest of this time to you in your son's name.